The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 47 The Stepping Stone The court. Mr. Danner, you may resume with your argument. Mr. Danner, thank you, Your Honor. Do you remember the ring? We had five people come in and look at this ring. What else did you hear about this ring? March 29th, 1993. Ken Kedzer of the State Police and David Ayers of the Canton Police Department went to the apartment of Rochelle Hillmeyer, excuse me, home of Rochelle Hillmeyer. They asked her if they could search. She signed the permission search form. They inquired if there were any areas of the house that were off limits to her. No. Well, the defendant had never told her she couldn't be in any area where the defendant had some property. And they did a search. And this was a cardboard box over by a chest of drawers that Rochelle said was his. And they looked in it, and they found a couple of ladies' rings, and this was there. Terry Haynes, he was brought in, gave some testimony that he was acquainted with Donna, and he dated her. He talked about the motorcycle ride. She lost a signet ring. He indicated that she was pretty upset about it. You heard Susan Emacucci and Ann Smiley sisters of Donna, said those had been gifts from their mom. Terry looked at this ring, the signet ring, and if you recall, it was Officer Boten that found this on the sink area in the Sekio watch on January 16, 1993. This was shown to Terry Haynes, and he said, yeah, this is the signet ring I got for her. He was shown the other rings, and he said, yeah, that is Donna's ring. The two sisters, Anne Smiley and Susan Amacucci, they told you quite a bit about the ring. Do you remember someone presented this ring to Anne Smiley? And my recollection said, have you seen this before? No, absolutely not. And why not? Because this was the ring that Terry Haynes gave Donna that she lost in that motorcycle ride back in September or October of 92. Jennifer McMillan, a little gal, who worked at the bank with Donna Tompkins. She had indicated that she had seen that ring at the bank. First time maybe seen it was when she was a teller. That her birthday was in July, and her birthstone was ruby. 
She had asked Anna if that was ruby on the side of the ring. Said no, it was a garnet. She held her ring. She looked at it. Macmillan indicated that she babysat for Justine from time to time. Saw Donna regularly at work. And by God, when she was shown that ring, didn't she start to cry a little bit? She said that was Donna's ring. Joanne Folk, a little interest in jewelry, likes to shop for jewelry at Kmart's and Walmart's. She said she had seen the ring. That she thought that the center stone, you know, was a birthstone. That her husband's birthstone is a garnet. And she knew that Donna's ring had a couple of garnets in this white stone. And she had seen that ring on Donna's hand every day, except for one time, when it was cleaned. Daly said, her office right there, very close to Donna. Daly, according to her, Donna put hand lotion on her hands and took her rings off. She came in. In my recollection, she teared up a little bit, too. Point blank. Seen that ring every day. And said, point blank. That is Donna's ring. And Smiley. I remember I was in college in 75 to 79. And my mom got that for Donna. And remember that it was custom made. And she had seen that ring as recently as February of 92. At their mother's funeral in Rock Falls. She had absolutely no doubt in her mind that that was Donna's ring that was recovered from a liquor box in Donald Bull's bedroom that he shared with Rochelle Hillmeyer. Susan Amicucci, yes, that was Donna's ring. Told you she had last saw it on Labor Day weekend, late August of 92. Seen it at her mother's funeral in February of 92. The Donna came down with Justine in October of 92, down in Champaign. Do you remember Susan was working on an MBA? A master's in business at Champaign University of Illinois? And her testimony was to the effect Donna brought Justine. Donna and Justine slept on the bed in her dorm room. She slept on the floor. She had a pet peeve about people wearing jewelry to bed at night. She looked at it and said, Yeah, absolutely Donna's ring. Yeah, absolutely one of my pet peeves was her sleeping with her jewelry on. She did it. What did Dr. Murphy find at the autopsy? No jewelry. What did Marty Boten find on January 16th? The signet ring in Donna's kitchen. What did Kedzer and Ayers find in March 29th, 1993? The ring. How in the world did Donna's ring get into the possession of Donald Bull? How in the world did the jewelry of Donna Tompkins end up being off of her hands and out by that sink? Question. Why wasn't the signet ring taken? Answer. Too easily identifiable. Got initials on it. Not as expensive a ring. A jeweler came in and he said, yeah. That is a ring that has had these garnets added on later. I don't know if it is really unique, but maybe it is unique to someone who owned it. Yeah, some people call that center stone an opal. Yeah, those are probably garnets on the side. 200, 250, something like that. That was his range, what it would have retailed for. That ring, that exhibit 62. Perhaps some people didn't think it was as easily traced. I want to start running a little bit of timeline with you, David Haynes. His wife, Sarah, came in and testified yesterday and told you that she was married and then on January 12th, 1993, they were having a little party at their house. She was cooking Cornish hens and it was her son's first birthday and her husband, David's dad, couldn't make it over because of the icy roads and that he was with her all that night, slept in the same bed when she leaves her work in the morning at 6.50 a.m. approximately 
David is home with the two kids with his responsibilities of getting the kids around and getting them to daycare or to the babysitter. And you have heard her say that, yeah, I got along fine with Donna. No animosity. As a matter of fact, we chatted on the phone once in a while about her mother's cancer. Yeah, one time Justine, apparently, one of the kids, the oldest, had shared a babysitter at the Haynes house. Certainly didn't get the idea that on January 12th, in the morning of January 13th, that David Haynes is sitting around someplace drinking 18 to 20 beers, cruising Canton, and having a flat tire within a block or two or three or four, depending on which location you believe. David Haynes was at home. Dr. Murphy, what did he say? Died at the time of her last drink within 90 minutes. Where was David Haynes at? At home with his wife. Let's talk about the next morning at the National Bank. We had a lady come in, Sheila Sisk, and Sheila indicated to you that she knew Donna on the morning of the 13th was to pick up the ATM deposit at the Chestnut Branch at the National Bank of Canton. And sometimes after, she came in to work after 8 o'clock. She calls David and says Donna is not here yet. And she says she calls the daycare. No, Justine is not there. She calls the Chestnut Branch again. And she called David a second time and said, You know, Donna has not made the pickup yet, and Justine is not at the daycare. She told David she was concerned about Donna not appearing. She expressed concern to David, and she said, You had better go check on her. So what did David do? He, um, placed a phone call. And there's another lady, Hazel Brown. She said she saw David make the phone call to the house. David goes upstairs to Max Scott the vice president of the National Bank, and says, You know, she is not here. And they discussed it a little bit, and... What did Max tell you? That Donna was a regular, dependable, well-liked employee at the bank. And he was a little bit concerned. But it was a little cold that morning, January the 13th, 1993. A little windy out. And he says, David, do you want me to go with you? Do I need to go with you? David said, I could probably go down, okay? And what did Max do? Within a few minutes of David leaving, he calls down, and when he calls, he doesn't get the answering machine. The phone just rings and rings. Lucinda Naus. She saw David arrive around 9.20 a.m. when she was finished cleaning Pauline Newcomb's house. We had Hazel Brown come in. She had seen the call being made. She said it was around 9.10 or 9.15 a.m. when she saw David call down to Donna's place. And he didn't say anything. But he said he got the answering machine. She said that after David had been gone a little while, a few minutes, that she got a call from him. And David indicated that he was at Pauline Newcomb's. And said he couldn't rouse her and that the car was in the garage. And what did they do? They discussed between the two of them, Hazel Brown and David Haynes, about calling the police. And that's what David Haynes did. And what did she tell you? That the call that David made to work was within approximately 10 minutes of his leaving the bank? That is an awfully short time frame to go down, make entry into Donna's apartment, pour heavy petroleum distillants, ethyl alcohol, and gasoline over Donna and Justine Tompkins while they lay there in their bed three hours after their normal wake-up time, and torch the place. And any prosecutor who brought a case against someone like David Haynes, with the facts in this case would be laughed out of this courtroom by you, and you know it. David talked about the phone calls that Donna wasn't there, and the second phone call about Justine not at the daycare, 
We talked about placing the call of getting the answering machine. We talked about going up and visiting with Max Scott. We talked about pulling into the driveway, seeing Donna's car parked in that three-stall garage behind the apartment building. Gone over, knocking, didn't get anyone. Went over and visited with Miss Newcomb. It was apparent that David had known Miss Newcomb for a number of years. Remember the National Bank of Canton managed that trust property? And he was helping Miss Newcomb more and more as time went by as she got older, managed that property. He goes over to her house. They find the number for the police department. He asked about a key, and she didn't have one that would fit. She pulled some keys out of a vase or something, and he calls, and of course, a while ago you heard the dispatch tape of this call. Seems a bit unusual that someone who has just went in killed two people, either by asphyxiation or pouring accelerant on them and then setting them on fire, is going to be the guy to pick up the phone to have the police come down so that they would know he is the one there at the property. When you make determinations in regard to the facts in this case, you get to bring your experiences in life and your good common sense with you. And folks, that doesn't mean good common sense. What did you hear on that phone call? There is some noise going on in that apartment next door. David said he saw a tiny puff of smoke or plaster coming through the wall. You could hear Pauline Newcomb a little bit in the background. There is some conversation. She has falling, something to that effect, so David goes out. He can't see in and, of course, I think all the fire people said, yeah, if you have got a fire going on and smoke inside the building, you can't see. And firemen, so they have a safety light attached to them to find their way out. David, the ever-prudent trust officer and attorney he is, pulls the air conditioner out of the window because he didn't want to make any more damage to the property. He also mentions, to my recollection, the possibility of a gas leak. Where is the stove normally located but in the kitchen? He had some familiarity with that building. He rented those apartments out before. So he pulls it out, and what did he say it was? You know, pressure? There were columns of smoke coming out of that window. And then he says that he went back to the door area, broke the glass out, and says there is not, you know, any immediate fire right there on the porch or anything. And he opens the door, and what greets him is this heavy smoke, and he saw an orange glowing dome someplace. I think it was three or four feet off the floor. And he realized at this moment that if there was anybody in that room, that they weren't alive. Kind of tragic. Attempt to be a good Samaritan and have your name brought up in court as a murderer. So what did David do? He runs around to the back of the house. He was aware that these bedrooms were normally in the back, and he breaks a couple of windows out to try to see if Justine is in there in the back bedroom. Do you remember Marty Brown, the first Canton police officer that was down? He said when he got there, he saw Max Scott. Max Scott was there, by the way, now too, that they were excited and Brown kept an eye on them because he was a little bit concerned that Haynes or Max would try to run into the burning building to save somebody. David said he stepped in that door a little bit when he was first there. And by God, yeah, we were very successful in backing up law enforcement. He said two steps and then maybe no steps. He had a three-year-old little baby, little girl. You have got a 30-year-old lady that you have known for a number of years that works with you every day. You have got a fire. How many of you have really spent a lot of time around a fire? How many of you have ever went to a house fire where a friend or a family member of yours has been inside of that house that is on fire? Fire. It is scary. I think some of the firefighters even indicated to you 
that they got their adrenaline flowing, even though they are used to going in and out of these fires. What did Max Scott tell you? When he got there, he sees David trying to get in one of the back windows saying, We have got to get them out. We have got to get them out. David Haynes didn't set that fire. David Haynes didn't kill these two people. Well, let's start looking at Donald Bull here. We have looked at the ring a little bit. We have looked at the sperm and the DNA a little bit. Let's start looking at some of the lay people that knew Bull. These lay people who knew Donna Tompkins. Iona Price, do you remember her? The little gal who worked at the Elks Club? Iona said that Donna and her worked at a party on Sunday night, the 10th of January, 5.15, 5.30 until midnight, 12.30 or 1 a.m. She also told you that in October of 92, that after Donna and her got off work one night, they went to a babysitter's house and picked Justine up, and they went to get a bite to eat at the Barbecue Roundup restaurant. And while they were there, in walked three people, Rochelle Hillmeyer, the defendant, and David Nell. As since Iona's husband Mike worked with Bull, that crowd sat down near the table near them. During that night, there was a conversation about Donna needing a hide-a-bed couch, And what else do you know about Iona Price and Donna Tompkins and this defendant bull? Iona got in this courtroom and said that she told Donna, Don't ever let bull in your house alone. This is a heck of an introduction line to start some building relationship between Donna Tompkins and Donald Bull. Let's talk about David Nell for a minute. He was kind of an exciting witness. We had him here on Friday afternoon, and he told you that he went to Bull's house on the evening of January 12, 1993 the same house that Rochelle Hillmeyer lived in. He told you that he had helped deliver the couch to Donna Tompkins' apartment with Bull and a guy named Stufflebeam. When they got there, they couldn't find a light switch or no electricity was on. Bull goes up to the mailbox, pulls the key out, 75 bucks. They open the apartment. They use their lighters. It was around Halloween, and they delivered this couch for 75 bucks. On the 12th, he says, he gets to Bull's, He says a couple trips were made to the liquor store to get more beer during the night. And he played some cards. Nell said he drank what? 18 to 20 beers himself. Bull drank about the same. He said that he asked Bull for a ride home around 1 or 2 in the morning because he didn't have a driver's license because of a previous DUI. And that Bull got access to Rochelle Hillmeyer's car with her permission. And that they took a six-pack with them. And they got some cigarettes at a gas station and they rode around for a while. And twice on the morning of January 13, 1993, they drove up and down First Avenue. Aren't you glad we only had 71 exhibits? That is the People's Exhibit 34. If you remember, Sergeant Ayers marked some identifiers on this for you. Here is the house that Donna Tompkins lived in. The apartment was on that side, the south side. And here is First Avenue. My recollection was that Nell said that, that they drove down First Avenue. I believe the first time it was north. And then they drove past, what did Bull say? Excuse me. I'd sure like to fuck her. And pointed at her apartment. And then they drove around uptown for a little bit longer. And at the time they came back down going south on first. And what did Bull say again? The same thing. Of course you remember that on Friday afternoon, Nell said during cross that, Yeah, that's what the cops made me say. 
Do you remember Nell came back on the following Monday and put him back on the stand and it was like, well, yeah, that's what I told them. Yeah, I've known Donnie since kindergarten. Yeah, he's my good friend. We asked him, what words did we tell you to say? Well, none. You guys just told me I knew more. You knew I was lying. And it was like, yeah, he said that. Each time we went past, he said that. But hey, what is the big deal? He says that about every woman. Bull did not say that night to Nell, excuse me, I want to fuck her again. And you didn't get from Nell that Bull ever bragged to him about the night about ever having sex with Donna Tompkins. Well, let's look at what is going on at the Hillmeyer house. There was a daughter of Rochelle, Misty Pratt, now, or Misty Harbor. She says that she returned home around 8.30 or 9 a.m., was a little bit confused about what the police report said, and when she got home, her grandma, Jackie Day, had already been by, and that when she got home, Donald Bull wasn't at home. She said that she was there at 8.30 or 9.30. What did you know? I think Rochelle Hillmeyer talked about that. Bull was supposed to be at work on January 13, 1993, at 7.30 in the morning, and he wasn't home yet. Rochelle's car wasn't home yet. Well, Misty said that Bull did come home sometime after she was there, and he made a comment about there was a house on fire down the street, and she also said that a few minutes after Bull made that statement, that's the first they had heard any emergency sirens. Bull's house. Donna's house. One, two, three, four blocks. What did Misty also tell you? That after Bull entered the residence, he went into the bedroom area and Rochelle, her mother, joined Bull there for a few minutes. And what did he do? He came out, put his jacket in the washing machine. And that was the same coat that he wore in the house that morning. What did he say? Well, had some transmission fluid on it. And then Bull returned to the bedroom. Let's talk about Eric Pig for a minute. You had a lot of witnesses in this case. Eric had indicated that he dated Jennifer Pratt, which was another daughter of Rochelle's. That he had spent the night at the Hillmeyer house on January 12th. That when he got up on the morning of the 13th, that Bull wasn't at home. He remembered that Rochelle was upset that Bull had not brought her car home yet. And his testimony was that he and his girlfriend were northbound on 2nd Avenue. 2nd Avenue. That they saw the fire. He also told you that that afternoon, the 13th of January, when he and Jennifer returned from Peoria shopping, that Bull was there, and he knew the woman who was killed in the fire. He and a friend had delivered a couch to her apartment, the same couch she was found dead on, and that Bull was real attentive to the news about this fire. Now Rochelle. She's an important witness. Bull moved in with her in late December, early January. They shared the same bedroom. Told you Bull worked from 7.30 to 4 Monday through Friday, 7.30 to 2.30 on Saturday. Bull would borrow a bicycle to go to work, that he didn't pay the bills or other expenses. Talks about the 12th. She says sometime after 4, she is there, Bull is there, Dave and Nell, Bull's friend, another guy, Doug, last name unknown to her, maybe a Ron Nell. There was some beer drinking going on and some card playing going on. And that somewhere after midnight, maybe as late as 2.30, Bull said, Can I use your car to take Nell home? You saw photos of her car. And what did she tell you? That Bull took her car. Nell left. 
and she didn't see Bull again until about 9.30 or 10 a.m. on January 13, 1993. Told you she was upset with Bull for having stayed out all night. She also told you that since Bull had moved in with her just a few weeks before, that that was the first time he had stayed out all night. She said that her mother, Jackie Day, and her daughter, Misty, were there when Bull arrived. And what did Bull tell her? Um, the car broke down. Flat tire. I tried to repair it. The jack slipped. It hurt my leg. This conversation is going on in the bedroom, as you recall. And what did she say? Gee, I would like to see that leg. So he rolls up his pant leg, and she looks at it, and she didn't see a cut. She didn't see a bruise. She didn't see a laceration. She didn't see swelling. She saw no injury to his leg at all. Bull also told you, well, he had eventually fallen asleep in his vehicle after the jack slipped. This is why he hadn't been home. He was approached by a person who asked if he needed some help. And that is what woke him up. And he drove to the gas station and had the flat tire fixed before he came home. He showed her some red spots on his jacket. And what did he say? Well, I hurt my leg and I got some blood on it. She told you it looked like blood to her. But years are going. Years are going. She's seen my leg. There is no cut. Oh, must be some automatic transmission fluid. And what does he do? He goes out of the bedroom, puts the jacket in the washing machine to wash it that morning. Rochelle said that Bull then went into the bedroom, went to sleep, and did not go to work that day. Bull also told her, when he first got home and her mother is there and her daughter is there, that he had seen some smoke and thought there was a fire somewhere down the street. And what did Rochelle tell you? That within a couple of minutes of Bull making that comment, she heard for the first time emergency sirens. Sure seems like Mr. Bull was out on the morning hours of January 13th, sometime after midnight, with a lot of opportunity to have committed the crimes that he's charged with here. Rochelle also said that sometime between the 13th and the date of the recovery of the ring, March 29, 1993, that Bull had told her something to the effect, you know, if the police ever want to come down here and search my things, you don't have to let them. Well, March 29th, Ayers and Kedzer come down. She signs a consent form. They recover the ring that you have seen, the ring with the white stone and the two red garnets. Rochelle also tells us something pretty important. He told you that that day, the 13th, but what did Bull do? He went and replaced all four tires on the car, and she had to pay him the $40 for it. It certainly was not her testimony that she asked Bull to change the tires on that car. Whose idea was it? The defendant's. Seems reasonable that someone might be concerned about some tire treads being left someplace. Seems reasonable that someone who has got blood on their jacket might want to put it in the washing machine and wash it away. Seems reasonable that someone who has killed a couple of people might want to try to conceal that and set a fire. These are consistent characteristics being exhibited by the defendant. Oh, one other thing. What did Rochelle tell you? She said that when Donnie came in that morning, he looked pretty good for sleeping in a car. Looked like his hair was wet, like it had been washed. Do you remember the signet ring and the Seikyo watch, Exhibit 61? Where was that found? By the sink in the kitchen. 
and sinks have water. You saw the Hillmeyer vehicle. It is not open for a debate, but there was no lavatory in there. Jackie Day, Rochelle's mother, she says she comes down. She says she got there that morning, took a kid to school. When she came to the Wareco gas station, which is over there, here is the old dairy, and what does she tell you? Then when she comes down the Sally to First Avenue, and she saw a car, a car she had bought for her daughter, Rochelle Hillmeyer, she stopped and she got out. She went over and looked at the car. Couldn't see anything wrong with it. Tires looked fine. Looked inside. Couldn't see anybody. What time is that? About 7.30 in the morning. What kind of area is this? Kind of an abandoned industrial place. Pretty good view from here over to Donna's apartment. See that tree line? See the switch box for the train signals? If you are going north on first, you've got railroad tracks to cross. What do people do when they come to railroad track? You are taught in driver's ed. Look right and left and make sure a train is not coming. And if you're on First Avenue and you're heading south, well, Donna's side of the building is on the opposite. The apartment is on the opposite side of the building. And what do you do when you get to the railroad track? You look left, you look right, and you look back that way, back towards the house to see if a train is coming from there. No. That is not a clear and unobstructed view. Well, Jackie, she sees the car, and she goes down to her daughter's place and visits with Rochelle, and one of her granddaughters is there, and when she gets there, Bola's not there. Of course, the car is not in the driveway. It is parked right over here, behind the old dairy building. What did she say? She said, It is a little bit of a contradiction, as she heard the sirens before Bola said that he had seen the fire but it was just within a minute or two. Brio clear. He knew Bull. He told you that five or six days to his recollection after the fire, he thought maybe on a Friday or Saturday, he was at the Hillmeyer place. And he had a little conversation with Bull. And Bull told him that he and a friend had delivered the couch to the girl who had died. And what else did he tell Clear? That the police had talked to him about the fire and they didn't have anything on him. Seems like a bit of an odd statement, doesn't it? Ted Anderson, the fire marshal, he comes in and he talks about a conversation he had with a caller who identified himself as Donald Bull. He said that conversation was on January 21 at the task force headquarters. Bull calls him and they have a little conversation on the telephone. Yep, I delivered a couch to her before Christmas. Told Ted that he sold her this hide-a-bed couch for 75 bucks that she left the key and the money in the mailbox, that she never did call him back, that he did not have contact with her after delivering the couch. Do you remember Stanko is the one that went around to the furniture stores trying to find out what a hide-a-bed couch might have been made of and who had sold it to her? This is how Bull came into this case. Ken Kedzer, state police investigator. He has a conversation with Bull January 27th, six days after Anderson has talked to him on the phone. And Kedzer said that he and Agent Nickel had a conversation at the Canton PD. And Bull told him that he had saw Donna and Iona at the barbecue roundup last fall. She'd asked him about buying a couch. And Bull said that he had told her that rights was too expensive. But he had a couch he could sell her for 75 bucks. He described the couch to her. She said that she would buy it. Said that the couch was stored at his sister's place. That Donna later called him and said that the money and the key were in the mailbox. That Bull, his buddy, 
David Nell, and Russell Stufflebeam delivered the couch on Halloween night. That the key and the money was in the mailbox. And that he locked the door and put the key back in the mailbox when it was done being delivered. And what did he say at point blank period? I have not been back to Donna's apartment since then. He said he talked to Donna four times since delivering the couch. Last time he had seen her had been at Mike and Iona Price's house when he had been with Mike. Said he would see Donna sometimes when she would drive past the furniture store, which is on Main Street in Canton. And he said he never talked to Donna at Wright's around Christmas of 92. He had talked to her about a reclining chair. And the only reason Bull could think of that Donna would have called him at Wright's Furniture at Christmas of 92 was to talk about the recliner chair. Bull also talked about, on January 12th, playing cards with Nell and Jeff and Jeff's girlfriend. That they drank beer and played cards from 4 in the afternoon until 3 in the morning. Four trips to the liquor store. Bull said he won $57 playing cards. And then at 5 or 5.30 a.m., he drove Nell home. The times have changed. We have now an amount he won playing cards. The number of trips to the liquor store are different. What else did he say? After he took Nell home, he went back to his girlfriend's house. Rochelle on 2nd Street behind the park. And in the driveway of Rochelle's about 6.30 or 7 a.m., he was changing the tire on her car. The jack slipped, and he hit his knee. Yes, he remembered Rochelle's mother, Jackie, coming by that day. He thought around 8 or 8.30. Bull told him, yeah, he hurt his knee, and he was hungover. And he didn't go to work on that day. The Kedzer said, Bull, we'd like to get a blood sample from you. January 27th, 1993. And Bull said, okay. I will, but not today. I'm going to brew in Q Bar. I will give you a blood sample tomorrow after work. Let's talk about Larry Nickel. At about 3.25 in the afternoon, went down to Bull's place of employment, Wright's Furniture Store. Bull indicated that he had recognized Nickel from being present with Ketzer on the previous day. And Nickel inquired whether Bull was still planning to give the blood sample. Bull said he was still planning to give the blood sample after work somewhere between 4 and 4.30 p.m. There was a conversation about arrangements to go to the hospital. And Bull indicated, I'll meet you at the PD, Canton PD, between 4 and 4.30, and then we'll go to the hospital. What did Nickel tell you in this courtroom? That he went to the Canton Police Department, got there at about 3.40 in the afternoon, and waited until 5.20 p.m. And that Bull did not arrive to go get the blood test drawn. That Bull did not call him at the police station and say he wasn't coming. The next interview was the very next day, January 29th, 1993, and it was Marty Boten, and that interview was about 2.15 p.m., and that was also at Wright's Furniture Store. Bull, Marty Boten told you, you were told that the reason he went down was to ask Bull why he didn't meet with Nickel on the previous day, January 28th, ninety-three, to go to the hospital to give the blood standard. And Bull, what did he tell Boten? What did you hear? That he decided to speak with some people and they informed him not to submit any blood tests at this time. You wonder why, if he is not involved, why he didn't give that blood standard. David Haynes, John Tompkins, Rod Franciscovich, Terry Haynes, they were all asked by law enforcement to give blood standards, and you heard from the witness stand that each and every one of them gave their blood standard. You even heard that one or two of them gave two blood standards, because the first blood had been put in the wrong kind of container or tube. Bold, no. January, no. Not given the blood. Bull also said that night when he was interviewed by Boten, 
that he had met Donna at the barbecue roundup, that she asked him about a rollout couch for sale, that he had one, he agreed to sell it to her for 75 bucks, and that he and Nell had delivered the couch in late October or early November, and the key had been in the mailbox, that Tompkins had contacted him since the rollout couch was delivered, and that it was about a chair or recliner chair that he had, but that it was in too bad a condition to sell. What did he say? He said, I only entered Donna Tompkins' apartment once, and that was when I delivered the couch. Bogdan then talked about an interview that took place on March 25th, 1993. And you remember that the Miranda form was actually dated March 24th, 1993. And Bogdan got up and said, Yeah, we put the wrong date on it. You will see the Miranda form. It will be available to you. But it should be pretty apparent by the date that Mr. Bull was being interviewed after the Miranda warnings were being given. And if he is playing some kind of game with law enforcement, he should have been put on notice that he should be accurate with his comments. Why did Bull tell Bowden on March 25, 1993, while Bull was accompanied by Sergeant Ayers? Yeah, he knew the victim. He had met her three or four times. He had sold her a couch for her new apartment on South First Avenue. They asked him about the night before the fire and the following morning. He had stayed with his girlfriend and the following were present. Ron Nell, Eric Pig, David Nell, and his girlfriend, Rochelle Hillmeyer. He said his girlfriend and the next door neighbor, Doug. They played cards, and he and Nell went to Twins Liquors a couple of times to get some alcohol, and he drove his girlfriend's vehicle each time. That at about 3.30 or 3.45 a.m., he gave Nell a ride home. They might have stopped to get some cigarettes. After dropping Nell off at East Walnut, he had a flat tire on his girlfriend's vehicle while he was pulling into the driveway. He thought that he attempted to fix the tire by replacing it with a spare. As he jacked up the car, the jack slipped. It struck him on the leg. He got up and went into the vehicle and fell asleep. If you're back in your own driveway, why wouldn't you limp in a few steps into your front door and go to bed inside the house where it's warm? And you should remember that there was a stipulation entered into this record that talked about the low temperature that day being, I think, 20 degrees, the maximum wind speed being 17 miles per hour, and a wind chill temperature of minus 8 degrees. When the wind was blowing at a maximum rate with a low of 20 degrees out, it doesn't make any sense. And what did Bowden ask him? He said, could that flat tire have been up near Bork's scrapyard? There's a scrapyard. Do you remember both sides? And there is Donna Tompkins' apartment. What did Bull say? I don't recall having a flat tire at that location. He remembered he recalled his girlfriend's mother coming over to the house. He also said he went to sleep. His girlfriend got him up around 10.30, and he decided not to go to work due to his hangover from drinking alcohol the night before. He had the tire fixed the next day. That is a different day for getting it fixed. Remember, he told Rochelle, I had it fixed that morning before I got here. He was asked to explain his involvement with Donna Tompkins by Officer Boten and Ayers. And he said, Well, I sold her the couch and delivered it to her apartment with Stufflebeam and Nell. We used Stufflebeam's truck. We delivered it in the evening, and it was dark outside. And either he or Nell had unlocked the door and placed the couch just inside the door. Again, the only time he was inside Donna Tompkins' apartment. He thought about selling her a recliner, but it wasn't in good enough condition. It got damp and wet. He didn't know about the fire until the paper came out. And he heard about the fire from Mike Price at work. Now he didn't work on the 13th of January. He worked on the 14th. And Misty and Jackie Day and Rochelle Hillmeyer, what did they say? What did they say? They said Bull, when he came into the house, said, There is a fire up the street. And the young man who had spent the night on the 12th and took the little girl to Peoria on the 13th, one of Misty's daughters, 
Sebol was real attentive to the news that night about the fire, and he knew the woman who had died. Bull also said that Price had told him about the fire on the 14th and asked him if he had got paid for the couch. He said that Tompkins, Donna, had called him up a few times at the store. He did inspections out of state. A point-blank question was presented to him at that interview. Is it possible you stopped over to Donna Tompkins' apartment on the 13th or 12th of 93? Not possible. I never had sex with her. Have not been to her apartment except to deliver the couch. At the end of that interview, there was another inquiry about him giving blood, and he said no. Well, on that same day, March 25, 1993, there was a second interview conducted of Bull. This one is in the afternoon. It is about 4.20 in the afternoon. Ayers is there. Boten is there. The Miranda form is given to him. He initialed it. He signs it. It is initialed by two police officers. And he told the officers he didn't recall his girlfriend's mother coming to 637 South 2nd on the morning of the 13th. That he had seen smoke coming from the area of Bork's scrapyard. He thought it was coming from a house in that general direction. He informed his girlfriend he saw the smoke and heard the sirens and thought her mother, Jackie Day, was present when he made those comments. Quite a change already from that morning interview. He said he took Neil home around 3. I think the first interview was 3.30, 3.45. He said he drank beer at Neil's house, and he had a flat tire and route back home on South 2nd and Oak Street, two blocks from his house, a block and a half from the scrapyard, a couple three blocks from Donna's apartment. We changed the location. He then says he changed the tire and the jack slipped. He hurt his leg. He got back in the car and he fell asleep. He was awakened later by a male subject who inquired if he was okay. Bull said he was, laying back in the car seat with his head hanging out in the minus 8 degree wind chill. And that's why he thought the guy asked him if he was okay, because his head was hanging out the window. He then said he got out of the car, put the spare on, and returned home. Well, let's talk about a woman we have passed over just a moment. And that was Joanne Wright. Do you remember her? 30s, 40s, she told you that on March 21st, 1993, that she was at a local tavern in Canton, the Suburban. She was in the company of another woman by the name of Kim Hammond. And what did Bull tell her that night? He said something to the effect, I can kill and get away with it, because I know how to kill and not get caught. Kind of an odd comment to make, isn't it? Let's talk about Harold Crozier for a moment. Do you remember Harold? He had indicated that he had known Bull since 1983 or 84, and Harold got up and acknowledged. Yeah, I have had some problems with the law. I think there was an armed violence. I think there was a drug delivery. I think there were a number of convictions against Harold. What did he tell you that Bull said to him? He said that one day they had been watching a TV program, something like 2020, and there was something about it on DNA, and that Bull asked him about DNA and its relationship to some blood. And Harold said something to the effect, blood, sperm, hair that fell out of your head, all this would be a basic fingerprint. They talked about some blood in the apartment, and Bull said no. And then he made a move too, according to Crozer. And then what did Bull say? No, it couldn't be. It would have been burned up if it was there. What did Crozer also tell you? That until after they had watched that program on DNA, the Bull had never spoke of having sexual relations with Donna Tompkins. But after he saw that program, he did. What did Bull also tell Crozer? He told him that he was worried about some things that he had had at Rochelle's. They were breaking up, and he was really worried about a ring that was there. 
Well, Crozer was cross-examined, and he said that Bull had told him that he sold a sofa couch for $300, and that when he delivered the couch, he had $150 and a key in the mailbox. And later, Bull got from Donna Tompkins another $150. And when he got that final $150, she had sex with him. On redirect, Crozer had indicated that Bull had told him that he had sex with Donna a day or two before she was killed. Bull told him about having sex with her twice. Bull told Crozer that he had had a flat tire near Donna's apartment on the morning of the fire, and that he blacked out, couldn't remember anything at all, until sometime later in the morning. I need Exhibit 76 or 77, the letter. Thank you. Let's talk about Chris Chester for a moment. Chris came in and testified in front of you, straight from the Department of Corrections. He said he talked with Bull March of 94. Said that he knew Bull for... since 89, I believe it was. Known him for three or four years. Bull told him that he met Donna delivering furniture. Pretty consistent with what everybody else has said. He told Chester that he had been drinking that night before going to her house. That he got into the house with a key that had been left in the mailbox. That she was asleep lying in bed. Thought she had been drinking. That she woke up and she said to him, Donna Tompkins, it is over between us. It was a bad idea. He was the wrong type for her. She slapped him. The next thing he knew, he came to on top of her. When he came to, he told Chester that he had his hands on her face. And he was leaning on her. Bull told Chester that she was dead. He also told Chester that he heard the little girl, Justine, and he went and did the same thing to the little girl. Bull told him that he left and went to walk to his car, and his car was parked by the junkyard. He was at the car for a little while, but he went back, thought maybe he had forgotten something. When he went in, he wiped down all of his fingerprints and everything. Thought maybe he still forgot something. And that's why and when he set the fire. Bull told Chester that he started the fire with a lighter. Bull told him that he threw an ashtray on the bed to make it look like an accident. Now you're going to get the opportunity to judge the credibility of the witness. And you will be instructed that the fact that the individual has been previously convicted of a felony maybe a reason to question the credibility and believability of that witness. But I'm telling you folks, that was a confession that Bull made to Chester, and you saw Chester take the stand. He held himself erect. He looked at people with his eyes, and there was not a single moment where he gave his testimony that he flinched from it. There were some questions about what he got for this. What did he tell you? He was in prison, wasn't getting out any earlier. Folks, even a person who commits a forgery or has committed an armed robbery before may not like too much a person who rapes and kills a woman and kills a baby and sets their bodies on fire. Let's talk about Mike Price. Mike told you that he met Bull in summer of 92, that he had helped Bull get a job at Wright's, that Bull and he worked together. That Bull did the driving of the truck or the van because Mike didn't have a driver's license. He indicated that they visited, were friends. He told you that Bull didn't go to work on January 13, 1993. He does say that Bull appeared for work the day after the fire, January 14th. And that when Bull came to work, Price was talking with the owner of the furniture store about the fire. 
And what did Bull do? He asked them what they were talking about. What did Price tell you? He said Bull never indicated that he knew anything about the fire or the deaths of Donna and Justine Tompkins. Mike also told you that Bull had told him on one occasion that he would like to have had sexual intercourse with Donna Tompkins. Bull never told him that he had had sexual intercourse, and most importantly, about Mike Price, was a letter dated July 17, 1993, that was sent by Bull to Mike Price. Mike identified this letter as being in Don Bull's handwriting. When we brought a gentleman in by the name of Johnson, a handwriting analyst, he had some handwriting examples that Bull had given in December of 95, and he had the examples and he got the letter and Johnson said, this is Bull's handwriting. This letter was written by Don Bull. July 17th, 1993, the date of the letter. What do you also want to know in this case? You know that on June 16th, 1993, remember the stipulation that was read into the record as evidence? Kurt Pierce of the Fulton County Sheriff's Department took Bull, met with him at the Graham Hospital. Dr. Rode McGuire drew some blood, was given to a lady by the name of Kay Danner in the presence of Kurt Pierce. Kay packaged it and gave it to Kurt Pierce. Those were the tubes of blood of the defendant that were given to Jenny Hahn, who made an EDTA stain card, who sent it to David Metzger. And David Metzger, June 22nd, June 23rd, 1993, received that stain card from Jenny Hahn and ran that second stud of auto rads on Bull. And what did David Metzger tell you? They had an open profile from the auto rads that had been ran originally on Donna Tompkins. That swab from her vagina, the blood of David Haynes, Terry Haynes, John Tompkins, and Rod Franciscovich. And then he had an open profile. And what did Metzger tell you, if you listened pretty carefully? He said he calculated the frequency of that type of profile existing in the population. And it was 1 in 3.8 billion. We talked a little bit about the modified ceiling, which I think everyone that testified in this matter said that it is not the correct approach. But those numbers were 1 in 210 million. I want you to remember that this letter to Mike Price is written after Bull has talked to Harold Crozer in the spring or early summer of 1993, and it is dated at a date about a month after he has had the blood drawn at the Graham Hospital. Hi Mike, I've been told some very bad news. The state's attorney Danner has to have somebody charged with the murder of Donna and Child in the fire in August 1993 before it goes in front of the grand jury because the police think it was a murder and the grand jury might rule that they died because of the fire. Well, I guess this is a big thing for Danner. He wants his name in the papers because the asshole will make headlines. He was going to charge somebody with murder. Well, guess who's going to be charged with it? My attorney told me that I will probably be the one charged with it. Man, that has fucked up my whole understanding of life. Man, what a setup. My attorney tells me that the sample they have could have been there five or three days before. So if anybody had sex with her in that time, it will match their DNA. I'm hoping I wasn't the last one with her. I mean, we were not lovers, just fuckers. I don't see where they get lovers at. That's what tells me it is a weak case. Because anyone could have had sex with her in that time frame. And it is not just to charge someone with murder because of that. But I'll tell you this. They charge me with that bullshit. There will be hell to pay. I will sue these fuckers sure as shit. But my attorney said there was no sign of any fighting. 
They can't put me there that night. No one saw or heard any fighting. I told my attorney I don't think it was a murder. I think she and her child died in the fire. I think they are trying to set me up. He also feels the same way. But he also said they will probably charge me with it in August, next month. They said someone seen me there that Saturday or Sunday before. Plus that somebody seen her at my apartment around Halloween. And that she had told someone we slept together. That makes us lovers. What the fuck? These pigs are so stupid of life. Danner is going to use me for his stepping stone. Man, I am so fucking pissed off I couldn't even see. I was so pissed I walked in, told him how I felt, how I thought he was a part of setting me up for this shit. I mean, I went off. After I was done, he asked me if I felt better. I said, yeah. He said, okay, now let's get down and dirty and fight this bullshit. Man, all I could do was just sit there and look at him. He fucks me up. He told me he understood how I must feel and that he didn't have any part of setting me up and all that shit. Well, he ensures me he is on my side. And he told me why, because Danner is using me. Well, they feel we were lovers. And since they did find some trace of sperm in her, that if this trace matches my DNA, then they are going to try and say we were lovers. Got into a fight. I killed her and covered it up. I set a fire. Now what kind of fucking shit is that? I sure don't understand how they could think I could do something like that. Why do they think I feel so fucking bad? My life hangs in their fucking hands, man. And it isn't right. It just isn't right. Man, it is so easy for them to do this to anybody. They can do it to any fucking buddy they want. And your rights? What fucking rights? If I had rights, I couldn't tell you what they are. Well, I am done crying now. So I will let you know one thing. I'd rather go down with a fight than let these fuckers push me into a plea. I still think I have rights. And I'm willing to fight for them. So I guess I am fucked in Fulton County. But not without a fight. God, I could use some pussy and beer. And I don't care what order. Got all my hair cut short. Later. Dawn. Well, folks. That is the sum and substance of the puzzle pieces. You have a job in front of you. It is a job I don't envy for any of you. You took an oath as jurors, and I expect it on the evidence that has been submitted in this record that you're going to find this defendant guilty of the offenses that he committed, the murders of both Don and Justine Tompkins, the concealment of their homicidal deaths, and the aggravated arson. Thank you. The court. All right. We're going to break for noon now, and then we will take up the arguments of the defense counsel. I want the jury kept together and taken to lunch under the control of the bailiffs. Remember, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, don't discuss the case. You haven't heard all the arguments, and I haven't instructed you yet. Don't listen to anything about it from any other source. If you would remove the jury, please. Mr. Stone, what time is the jury returned? The court. That is a good question. Whereupon the jury is removed from the courtroom. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic.
Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.